Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories. Have you ever felt unwanted or unaccepted in a given situation? The main character in this story, Yanko, certainly has. He's a poor immigrant who has survived a shipwreck and been washed ashore in a small English village. He looks different, he can't speak English, and the villagers treat him pretty badly. Only one person in the village has the heart and courage to show him any kindness. And that is the quiet, plain farmer's daughter, Amy Foster. The story is written by Joseph Conrad, a Polish-British writer regarded as one of the greatest novelists to write in the English language. Though he did not speak English fluently until his 20s, he was a master prose stylist who brought a non-English sensibility into English literature. Conrad wrote stories and novels, many with a nautical setting, that depict trials of the human spirit in the midst of what he saw as an impassive, inscrutable universe. Conrad is considered an early modernist, though his works contain elements of 19th century realism. His narrative style and anti-heroic characters have influenced numerous authors and inspired movies. And now, part one of Amy Foster by Joseph Conrad. Kennedy is a country doctor and lives in Colebrook on the shores of East Bay. The high ground rising abruptly behind the red roofs of the little town crowds the quaint high street against the wall which defends it from the sea. Beyond the seawall, there curves for miles in a vast and regular sweep the barren beach of Shingle, with the village of Brenzet standing out darkly across the water, a spire in a clump of trees. And still farther out, the perpendicular column of a lighthouse, looking in the distance no bigger than a lead pencil, marks the vanishing point of the land. The country at the back of Brenzet is low and flat, but the bay is fairly well sheltered from the seas, and occasionally a big ship, windbound or through stress of weather, makes use of the anchoring ground a mile and a half due north from you as you stand at the back door of the Ship Inn in Brenzet. A dilapidated windmill nearby lifting its shattered arms from a mound no laughter than a rubbish heap, and a martello tower squatting at the water's edge half a mile to the south of the Coast Guard cottages are familiar to the skippers of small craft. These are the official sea marks for the patch of trustworthy bottom represented on the Admiralty charts by an irregular oval of dots enclosing several figures of six, with a tiny anchor engraved among them, and the legend mud in shells overall. The brow of the upland overtops the square tower of the Colebrook Church. The slope is green and looped by a white road. Ascending along this road, you open a valley broad and shallow, a wide green trough of pastures and hedges merging inland into a vista of purple tints and flowing lines, closing the view. In this valley down to Brenzet and Colebrook, and up to Darnford, the market town 14 miles away, lies the practice of my friend Kennedy. He had begun life as surgeon in the Navy, and afterwards had been the companion of a famous traveler, in the days when there were continents with unexplored interiors. His papers on the fauna and flora made him known to the scientific societies. And now he had come to a country practice, from choice. The penetrating power of his mind, acting like a corrosive fluid, had destroyed his ambition, I fancy, 
His intelligence is of a scientific order, of an investigating habit, and of that unappeasable curiosity which believes that there is a particle of general truth in every mystery. A good many years ago now, on my return from abroad, he invited me to stay with him. I came readily enough, and as he could not neglect his patience to keep me company, he took me on his rounds, thirty miles or so of an afternoon sometimes. I waited for him on the roads, the horse reached after the leafy twigs, and, sitting in the dog cart, I could hear Kennedy's laugh through the half-open door left open of some cottage. He had a big, hearty laugh that would have fitted a man twice his size, a brisk manner, a bronzed face, and a pair of gray, profoundly attentive eyes. He had the talent of making people talk to him freely, and an inexhaustible patience in listening to their tales. One day, as we trotted out of a large village into a shady bit of road, I saw on our left hand a low black cottage with diamond panes in the windows, a creeper on the end wall, a roof of shingle, and some roses climbing on the rickety trellis work of the tiny porch. Kemdy pulled up to a walk. A woman, in full sunlight, was throwing a dripping blanket over a line stretched between two old apple trees. And as the bob-tailed, long-necked chestnut, trying to get his head, jerked the left hand, covered by a thick dog-skin glove, the doctor raised his voice over the hedge. "'How's your child, Amy?' I had the time to see her dull face, red, not with a mantling blush, but as if her flat cheeks had been vigorously slapped, and to take in the squat figure, the scanty, dusty brown hair drawn into a tight knot at the back of the head. She looked quite young. With a distinct catch in her breath, her voice sounded low and timid. He's well, thank you. We tried it again. A young patient of yours, I said, and the doctor, flicking the chestnut absently, muttered, Her husband used to be. She seems a dull creature, I remarked listlessly. Precisely, said Kennedy. She is very passive. It's enough to look at the red hands hanging at the end of those short arms, at those slow, prominent brown eyes, to know the inertness of her mind an inertness that one would think made it everlastingly safe from all the surprises of imagination. And yet, which of us is safe? At any rate, such as you see her, she had enough imagination to fall in love. She's the daughter of one Isaac Foster, who, from a small farmer, has sunk into a shepherd. The beginning of his misfortunes, dating from his runaway marriage with the cook of his widowed father, a well-to-do, apoplectic grazier, who passionately struck his name off his will and had been heard to utter threats against his life. But this old affair, scandalous enough to serve as a motive for a Greek tragedy, arose from the similarity of their characters. There are other tragedies, less scandalous and of a subtler poignancy, arising from irreconcilable differences and from that fear of the incomprehensible that hangs over all our heads. Over all our heads. The tired chestnut dropped into a walk, and the rim of the sun, all red in a speckless sky, touched familiarly the smooth top of a ploughed rise near the road 
as I had seen it times innumerable touch the distant horizon of the sea. The uniform brownness of the harrowed field glowed with a rosy tinge, as though the powdered clods had sweated out in minute pearls of blood the toil of uncounted plowmen. From the edge of a copse, a wagon with two horses was rolling gently along the ridge. Raised above our heads on the skyline, it loomed up against the red sun, triumphantly big, enormous, like a chariot of giants drawn by two slow-stepping steeds of legendary proportions. And the clumsy figure of the man plodding at the head of the leading horse projected itself on the background of the infinite with a heroic uncouthness. The end of his carter's whip quivered high up in the blue. Kennedy discoursed. She's the eldest of a large family. At the age of fifteen, they put her out to service at the Newburn's farm. I attended Mrs. Smith, the tenant's wife, and saw that girl there for the first time. Mrs. Smith, a genteel person with a sharp nose, made her put on a black dress every afternoon. I don't know what induced me to notice her at all. There are faces that call your attention by a curious want of definiteness in their whole aspect, as, walking in a mist, you peer attentively at a vague shape which, after all, may be nothing more curious or strange than a signpost. The only peculiarity I perceived in her was a slight hesitation in her utterance, a sort of preliminary stammer which passes away with the first word. When sharply spoken to, she was apt to lose her head at once. But her heart was of the kindest. She had never been heard to express a dislike for a single human being, and she was tender to every living creature. She was devoted to Mrs. Smith, to Mr. Smith, to their dogs, cats, canaries, and as to Mrs. Smith's gray parrot, its peculiarities exercised upon her a positive fascination. Nevertheless, when that outlandish bird, attacked by the cat, shrieked for help in human accents, she ran out into the yard, stopping her ears, and did not prevent the crime. For Mrs. Smith, this was another evidence of her stupidity. On the other hand, her want of charm, in view of Smith's well-known frivolousness, was a great recommendation. Her short-sighted eyes would swim with pity for a poor mouse in a trap, and she'd been seen once by some boys on her knees in the wet grass helping a toad in difficulties. If it's true, as some German fellow has said, that without phosphorus there is no thought, it's still more true that there's no kindness of heart without a certain amount of imagination. She had some. She had even more than is necessary to understand suffering and to be moved by pity. She fell in love under circumstances that leave no room for doubt in the matter, for you need imagination to form a notion of beauty at all, and still more to discover your ideal in an unfamiliar shape. How this aptitude came to her, and what it did feed upon, is an inscrutable mystery. She was born in the village, and had never been further away from it than Colebrook, or perhaps Darnford. She lived for years with the Smiths, New Barnes is an isolated farmhouse a mile away from the road, and she was content to look day after day at the same fields, hollows, rises, at the trees and the hedgerows, at the faces of the four men about the farm, always the same, 
day after day, month after month, year after year. She never showed a desire for conversation, and, as it seemed to me, she did not know how to smile. Sometimes of a fine Sunday afternoon, she would put on her best dress, a pair of stout boots, a large gray hat trimmed with a black feather. I've seen her in that finery. Seize an absurdly slender parasol, climb over two stiles, tramp over three fields and along 200 yards of road. Never further. There stood Foster's cottage. She would help her mother to give their tea to the younger children, wash up the crockery, kiss the little ones, and then go back to the farm. That was all. All the rest, all the change, all the relaxation. She never seemed to wish for anything more. And then she fell in love. She fell in love silently, obstinately, perhaps helplessly. It came slowly, but when it came, it worked like a powerful spell. It was love as the ancients understood it, an irresistible and fateful impulse, a possession. Yes, it was in her to become haunted and possessed by a face, by a presence, fatally, as though she had been a pagan worshipper of form under a joyous sky, and to be awakened at last from that mysterious forgetfulness of self, from that enchantment, from that transport, by a fear resembling the unaccountable terror of a brute. With the sun hanging low on its western limit, the expanse of the grasslands framed in the counterscarps of the rising ground took on a gorgeous and somber aspect. A sense of penetrating sadness, like that inspired by a grave strain of music, disengaged itself from the silence of the fields. The men we met walked past slow, unsmiling, with downcast eyes, as if the melancholy of an overburdened earth had weighted their feet, bowed their shoulders, borne down their glances. Yes, said the doctor to my remark, one would think the earth is under a curse, since all of her children, these that cling to her the closest, are uncouth in body, and as leaden of gait as if their very hearts were loaded with chains. But here on this same road, you might have seen amongst these heavy men a being lithe, supple, and long-limbed, straight like a pine with something striving upwards in his appearance, as though the heart within him had been buoyant. Perhaps it was only the force of the contrast, but when he was passing one of these villagers here, the soles of his feet did not seem to me to touch the dust of the road. He vaulted over the stiles, paced these slopes with a long elastic stride that made him noticeable at a great distance, and had lustrous black eyes. He was so different from the mankind around that his freedom of movement, his soft, a little startled glance, his olive complexion and graceful bearing, his humanity, suggested to me the nature of a woodland creature. He came from there. The doctor pointed with his whip, and from the summit of the descent, seen over the rolling tops of the trees in a park by the side of the road, appeared the level sea far below us, like the floor of an immense edifice inlaid with bands of dark ripple, with still trails of glitter, ending in a belt of glassy water at the foot of the sky. 
the light blur of smoke from an invisible steamer faded on the great clearness of the horizon like the mist of a breath on a mirror. And inshore, the white sails of a coaster, with the appearance of disentangling themselves slowly from under the branches, floated clear of the foliage of the trees. Shipwrecked in the bay? I said. Yes, he was a castaway, a poor emigrant from Central Europe, bound to America, and washed ashore here in a storm. And for him, who knew nothing of the earth, England was an undiscovered country. It was some time before he learned its name, and for all I know he might have expected to find wild beasts or wild men here, when, crawling in the dark over the sea wall, he rolled down the other side into a dike, where it was another miracle he didn't get drowned. But he struggled instinctively like an animal under a net, and this blind struggle threw him out into a field. He must have been, indeed, of a tougher fiber than he looked to withstand without expiring from such buffetings. The violence of his exertions, and so much fear. Later on, in his broken English that resembled, curiously, the speech of a young child, he told me himself that he would put his trust in God, believing he was no longer in this world. And truly, he would add, how was he to know? He fought his way against the rain and the gale on all fours and crawled at last among some sheep huddled close under the lee of a hedge. They ran off in all directions, bleeding in the darkness, and he welcomed the first familiar sound he heard on these shores. It must have been two in the morning then, and this is all we know of the manner of his landing, although he did not arrive unattended by any means. Only his grisly company did not begin to come ashore till much later in the day. The doctor gathered the reins, clicked his tongue. We trotted down the hill. Then, turning almost directly, a sharp corner into the high street, we rattled over the stones and were home. We'll return right after this message from our sponsor. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. And now we return to Amy Foster by Joseph Conrad. Late in the evening, Kennedy, breaking a spell of moodiness that had come over him, returned to the story. Smoking his pipe, he paced the long room from end to end. A reading lamp concentrated all its light upon the papers on his desk, and, sitting by the open window, I saw, after the windless, scorching day, the frigid splendor of a hazy sea lying motionless under the moon. Not a whisper, not a splash, not a stir of the shingle, not a footstep, not a sigh came up from the earth below. Never a sign of life but the scent of climbing jasmine, and Kennedy's voice, speaking behind me, passed through the wide casement to vanish outside in a chill and sumptuous stillness. He began, 
The relations of shipwrecks in the olden time tell us of much suffering. Often the castaways were only saved from drowning to die miserably from starvation on a barren coast. Others suffered violent death or else slavery, passing through years of precarious existence with people to whom their strangeness was an object of suspicion, dislike, or fear. We read about these things, and they are very pitiful. It is indeed hard upon a man to find himself a lost stranger, helpless, incomprehensible, and of a mysterious origin in some obscure corner of the earth. Yet amongst all the adventures shipwrecked in all the wild parts of the world, there is not one, it seems to me, that ever had to suffer a fate so simply tragic as the man I'm speaking of. The most innocent of adventurers cast out by the sea in the bite of this bay, almost within sight from this very window. He did not know the name of his ship. Indeed, in the course of time we discovered he did not even know that ships had names, like Christian people. And when, one day, from the top of the Talford Hill, he beheld the sea lying open to his view, his eyes roamed afar, lost in an air of wild surprise, as though he had never seen such a sight before. And probably he had not. As far as I could make out, He'd been hustled together with many others on board an emigrant ship lying at the mouth of the Elbe, too bewildered to take note of his surroundings, too weary to see anything, too anxious to care. They were driven below into the tween deck and battened down from the very start. It was a low timber dwelling, he would say, with wooden beams overhead, like the houses in his country, but you went into it down a ladder. It was very large, very cold, damp, and somber, with places in the manner of wooden boxes where people had to sleep, one above the other, and it kept on rocking all ways at once, all the time. He crept into one of these boxes and laid down there in the clothes in which he left his home many days before, keeping his bundle and his stick by his side. People groaned, children cried, water dripped, and lights went out, the walls of the place creaked, and everything was being shaken, so that in one's little box, one dared not lift one's head. He had lost touch with his only companion, a young man from the same valley, he said. And all the time a great noise of wind went on outside, and heavy blows fell. Boom! Boom! An awful sickness overcame him, even to the point of making him neglect his prayers. Besides, one could not tell whether it was morning or evening. It seemed always to be night in that place. Before that, he'd been traveling a long, long time on the iron track. He looked out of the window, which had a wonderfully clear glass in it, and the trees, the houses, the fields, and the long roads seemed to fly round and round about him until his head swam. He gave me to understand that he had on his passage beheld uncounted multitudes of people, whole nations, all dressed in such clothes as the rich wear. Once he was made to get out of the carriage and slept through a night on a bench in a house of bricks with his bundle under his head. And once for many hours he had to sit on a floor of flat stones dozing with his knees up and with his bundle between his feet. 
There was a roof over him which seemed made of glass and was so high that the tallest mountain pine he'd ever seen would have had room to grow under it. Steam machines rolled in at one end and out the other. People swarmed more than you can see on a feast day around the miraculous holy image in the yard of the Carmelite convent down in the plains where, before he left his home, he drove his mother in a wooden cart. A pious old woman who wanted to offer prayers and make a vow for his safety. He could not give me an idea of how large and lofty and full of noise and smoke and gloom and clang of iron the place was, but someone had told him it was called Berlin. Then they rang a bell, and another steam machine came in, and again he was taken on and on through a land that wearied his eyes by its flatness without a single bit of a hill to be seen anywhere. One more night he spent shut up in a building like a good stable with a litter of straw on the floor, guarding his bundle amongst a lot of men, of whom not one could understand a single word he said. In the morning they were all led down to the stony shores of an extremely broad, muddy river, flowing not between hills, but between houses that seemed immense. There was a steam machine that went on the water, and they all stood upon it, packed tight, only now there were with them many women and children who made much noise. A cold rain fell, the wind blew in his face, he was wet through, and his teeth chattered. He and the young man from the same valley took each other by the hand. They thought they were being taken to America straight away, but suddenly the steam machine bumped against the side of a thing like a house on the water. The walls were smooth and black, and there uprose, growing from the roof as it were, bare trees in the shape of crosses, extremely high. That's how it appeared to him then, for he'd never seen a ship before. This was the ship that was going to swim all the way to America. Voices shouted. Everything swayed. There was a ladder dipping up and down. He went on up, his hands and knees in mortal fear of falling into the water below, which made a great splashing. He got separated from his companion, and when he descended into the bottom of that ship, his heart seemed to melt suddenly within him. It was then also, as he told me, that he lost contact for good and all with one of those three men who the summer before had been going about through all the little towns in the foothills of his country. They would arrive on market days, driving in a peasant's cart, and would set up an office in an inn or some other Jew's house. There were three of them, of whom one with a long beard looked venerable, and they had red cloth collars round their necks and gold lace on their sleeves, like government officials. They sat proudly behind a long table, and in the next room, so that the common people shouldn't hear, they kept a cunning telegraph machine, through which they could talk to the Emperor of America. The fathers hung about the door, but the young men of the mountains would crowd up to the table asking many questions, for there was work to be got all the year round at three dollars a day in America, and no military service to do. But the American Kaiser would not take everybody. Oh, no. He himself had a great difficulty in getting accepted, and the venerable man in uniform had to go out of the room several times to work the telegraph on his behalf. The American Kaiser engaged him at last at three dollars, he being young and strong. However, Many able young men backed out, 
"'afraid of the great distance. "'Besides, those only who had some money could be taken. "'There were some who sold their huts and their land "'because it cost a lot of money to get to America. "'But then, once there, you had three dollars a day, "'and if you were clever, "'you could find places where true gold could be picked up on the ground. "'His father's house was getting over full. Two of his brothers were married and had children.' he promised to send money home from America by post twice a year. His father sold an old cow, a pair of piebald mountain ponies of his own raising, and a cleared plot of fair pasture land on the sunny slope of a pine-clad pass to a Jew innkeeper, in order to pay the people of the ship that took men to America to get rich in a short time. He must have been a real adventurer at heart, for how many of the greatest enterprises in the conquest of the earth had for their beginning just such a bargaining away of the paternal cow for the mirage, or true gold, far away. I've been telling you more or less in my own words what I learned fragmentarily in the course of two or three years, during which I seldom missed an opportunity of a friendly chat with him. He told me this story of his adventure with many flashes of white teeth and lively glances of black eyes, at first in a sort of an anxious baby talk, then as he acquired the language, with great fluency, but always with that singing, soft, and at the same time vibrating intonation that instilled a strangely penetrating power into the sound of the most familiar English words, as if they'd been the words of an unearthly language. And he always would come to an end, with many emphatic shakes of his head, upon that awful sensation of his heart melting within him directly as he set foot on board that ship. Afterwards there seemed to come for him a period of blank ignorance, at any rate as to facts. No doubt he must have been abominably seasick and abominably unhappy. This soft and passionate adventure, taken thus out of his knowledge, and feeling bitterly as he lay in his emigrant bunk, his utter loneliness. For his was a highly sensitive nature. The next thing we know of him for certain is that he'd been hiding in Hammond's pig pound by the side of the road to Norton, six miles, as the crow flies, from the sea. Of these experiences, he was unwilling to speak. They seemed to have seared into his soul a somber sort of wonder and indignation. Through the rumors of the countryside, which lasted for a good many days after his arrival, we know that the fishermen of West Colbrook had been disturbed and startled by heavy knocks against the walls of weatherboard cottages, and by a voice crying piercingly strange words in the night. Several of them turned out even, but, no doubt, he had fled in sudden alarm at their rough, angry tones hailing each other in the darkness. A sort of frenzy must have helped him up the steep Norton Hill. It was he, no doubt, who early the following morning had been seen lying, in a swoon, I should say, on the roadside grass by the Brenzet carrier, who actually got down to have a nearer look, but drew back, intimidated by the perfect immobility, and by something queer in the aspect of that tramp, sleeping so still under the showers. As the day advanced, some children came dashing into school at Norton in such a fright that the school mistress went out and spoke indignantly to the horrid-looking man on the road. He edged away, hanging his head for a few steps, and then suddenly ran off with extraordinary fleetness. 
The driver of Mr. Bradley's milk cart made no secret of it that he had lashed with his whip at a hairy sort of gypsy fellow who, jumping up at the turn of a road by the vents, made a snatch at the pony's bridle. And he caught him a good one, too. Right over the face, he said. It made him drop down in the mud a jolly sight quicker than he'd jumped up. But it was a good half a mile before he could stop the pony. Maybe that in his desperate endeavors to get help, and in his need to get in touch with someone, the poor devil had tried to stop the cart. Also, three boys confessed afterwards to throwing stones at a funny tramp, knocking about all wet and muddy, and, it seemed, very drunk, in the narrow, deep lane by the lime kilns. All this was the talk of three villages for days. But we have Mrs. Finns, the wife of Smith's wagoner, unimpeachable testimony that she saw him get over the low wall of Hammond's pig pound and lurch straight at her, babbling aloud in a voice that was enough to make one die of fright. Having the baby with her in a perambulator, Mrs. Finn called out to him to go away, and as he persisted in coming nearer, she hit him courageously with her umbrella over the head and, without once looking back, ran like the wind with the perambulator as far as the first house in the village. She stopped then, out of breath, and spoke to old Lewis, hammering there at a heap of stories, and the old chap, taking off his immense black wire goggles, got up on his shaky legs to look where she pointed. Together they followed with their eyes the figure of the man running over a field. They saw him fall down, pick himself up, and run on again, staggering and waving his long arms above his head in the direction of the Newburn's farm. From that moment, he is plainly in the toils of his obscure and touching destiny. There is no doubt after this of what happened to him. All is certain now. Mrs. Smith's intense terror. Amy Foster's stolid conviction held against the other's nervous attack that the man meant no harm. Smith's exasperation on his return from Donford Market at finding the dog barking himself into a fit. The back door locked his wife in hysterics, and all for an unfortunate, dirty tramp, supposed to be even then lurking in his stackyard. Was he? He would teach him to frighten women. We'll return to our show right after this sponsor message. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And now, back to our show. Now, Smith is notoriously hot-tempered but the sight of some nondescript and miry creature sitting cross-legged amongst a lot of loose straw and swinging itself to and fro like a bear in a cage made him pause. Then this tramp stood up silently before him, one mass of mud and filth from head to foot. Smith, alone among his stacks with this apparition, in the stormy twilight ringing with the infuriated barking of the dog, felt the dread of an inexplicable strangeness. But when that being, parting with his black hands the long matted locks that hung before his face as you part the two halves of a curtain, looked out at him with glistening, wild, 
black and white eyes. The weirdness of this silent encounter fairly staggered him. He had admitted since, for the story has been a legitimate subject of conversation about here for years, that he made more than one step backwards. Then a sudden burst of rapid, senseless speech persuaded him at once that he had to do with an escaped lunatic. In fact, that impression never wore off completely. Smith has not in his heart given up a secret conviction of the man's essential insanity to this very day. As the creature approached him, jabbering in a most discomposing manner, Smith, unaware that he was being addressed as a gracious lord and adjured in God's name to afford food and shelter, kept on speaking firmly but gently to it and retreated all the time into the other yard. At last, watching his chance, by a sudden charge, he bundled him headlong into the wood lodge and instantly shot the bolt. Thereupon he wiped his brow, though the day was cold. He had done his duty to the community by shutting up a wandering and probably dangerous maniac. Now Smith isn't a hard man at all, but he had room in his brain only for that one idea of lunacy. He was not imaginative enough to ask himself whether the man might be perishing with cold and hunger. Meantime, at first, the maniac made a great deal of noise in the lodge. Mrs. Smith was screaming upstairs, where she had locked herself in her bedroom. But Amy Foster sobbed piteously at the kitchen door, wringing her hands and muttering, Don't! Don't! I dare say Smith had a rough time of it that evening, with one noise and another, and this insane, disturbing voice crying obstinately through the door only added to his irritation. He couldn't possibly have connected this troublesome lunatic with the sinking of a ship in East Bay, of which there had been a rumor in the Darnford marketplace. And I dare say the man inside had been very near to insanity on that night. Before his excitement collapsed and he became unconscious, he was throwing himself violently about in the dark, rolling on some dirty sacks and biting his fists with rage, cold, hunger, amazement, and despair. He was a mountaineer of the eastern range of the Carpathians, and the vessel sunk the night before in East Bay was the Hamburg emigrant ship Herzogin Sophia Dorothea, of appalling memory. A few months later, we could read in the papers the accounts of the bogus emigration agencies among the Sclavonian peasantry in the more remote provinces of Austria. The object of these scoundrels was to get hold of the poor ignorant people's homesteads, and they were in league with the local usurers. They exported their victims to Hamburg mostly. As to the ship, I had watched her out of this very window, reaching close, hauled under short canvas into the bay on a dark, threatening afternoon. She came to an anchor, correctly by the chart, off the Brenzet Coast Guard Station. I remember before the night fell looking out again at the outlines of her spars and rigging that stood out dark and pointed on a background of ragged, slaty clouds like another, like another and a slighter spire to the left of the Brenzet Church Tower in the evening that the wind rose. At midnight I could hear in my bed the terrific gusts and the sounds of a driving deluge. About that time the Coast Guardsmen thought they saw the lights of a steamer over the anchoring ground. In a moment they vanished, 
but it is clear that another vessel of some sort had tried for shelter in the bay on that awful blind night, had rammed the German ship amidships, a breach, as one of the divers told me afterwards, that you could sail a Thames barge through, and then had gone away, either scathless or damaged, who shall say, but had gone out, unknown, unseen, and fatal, to perish mysteriously at sea. Of her, nothing ever came to light, and yet the hue and cry that was raised all over the world would have found her out if she'd been in existence anywhere on the face of the waters. A completeness without a clue, and a stealthy silence as of a neatly executed crime, characterized this murderous disaster, which, as you may remember, had its gruesome celebrity. The wind would have prevented the loudest outcries from reaching the shore. There had been evidently no time for signals of distress. It was death without any sort of fuss. The Hamburg ship, filling all at once, capsized as she sank, and at daylight there was not even the end of a spire to be seen above the water. She was missed, of course, and at first the Coast Guardsman surmised that she'd either dragged her anchor or parted her cable sometime during the night and had been blown out to sea. Then, after the tide turned, the wreck must have shifted a little and released some of the bodies, because a child, a little fair-haired child in a red frock, came ashore abreast of the Martello Tower. By the afternoon, you could see along three miles of beach dark figures with bare legs dashing in and out of the tumbling foam and rough-looking men, women with hard faces, children, mostly fair-haired, were being carried, stiff and dripping on stretchers, on waddles, on ladders, in a long procession past the door of the ship inn to be laid out in a row under the north wall of the Brenzet Church. Officially, the body of the little girl in the red frock is the first thing that came ashore from that ship, but I have patience among the seafaring population of West Colebrook, and unofficially, I am informed that very early that morning two brothers, who went down to look after their cobble, hauled up on the beach, found a good way from Brenzet, an ordinary ship's hen coop lying high and dry on the shore with eleven drowned ducks inside. Their families ate the birds, and the hen coop was split into firewood with a hatchet. It is possible that a man, supposing he happened to be on deck at the time of the accident, might have floated ashore on that hen coop. He might. I admit it's improbable. But there was the man, and for days, nay, for weeks, it didn't enter our heads that we had amongst us the only living soul that had escaped from that disaster. The man himself, even when he learned to speak intelligibly, could tell us very little. He remembered he had felt better after the ship had anchored, I suppose, and that the darkness, the wind, and the rain took his breath away. This looks as if he'd been on deck some time during that night, but we mustn't forget he'd been taken out of his knowledge that he had been seasick and battened down below for four days, that he had no general notion of a ship or the sea, and therefore could have no definite idea of what was happening to him. The rain, the wind, the darkness he knew. He understood the bleeding of the sheep, and he remembered the pain of his wretchedness and misery, his heartbroken astonishment that it was neither seen nor understood. 
his dismay at finding all the men angry and all the women fierce. He had approached them as a beggar, it is true, he said. But in his country, even if they gave nothing, they spoke gently to beggars. The children of his country were not taught to throw stones at those who asked for compassion. Smith's strategy overcame him completely. The wood lodge presented the horrible aspect of a dungeon. What would be done to him next? No wonder that Amy Foster appeared to his eyes with the aureole of an angel of light. The girl had not been able to sleep for thinking of the poor man, and in the morning, before the Smiths were up, she slipped out across the backyard. Holding the door of the wood lodge ajar, she looked in and extended to him half a loaf of white bread. Such bread as the rich eat in my country, he used to say. Thank you everyone for joining us for part one of the incredible story, Amy Foster, by Joseph Conrad. Stay tuned for part two and the conclusion next week Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. If you enjoy this story, please do send us a review and let us know for 1001 Greatest Love Stories. Until next week at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, this is your host, John Hagedorn. Everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.